I won't let my moderate to severe plaque psoriasis symptoms define me. Emerge as you. In two clinical studies, Trimphia guselkumab, taken by injection, provided 90% clear skin at 16 weeks in 7 out of 10 adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. In a study, nearly 7 out of 10 patients with 90% clear skin at 16 weeks were still clear at 5 years. At one year and thereafter, patients and healthcare providers knew that Tremphia was being used. This may have increased results. Results may vary. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Tremphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection, including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information at Tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. Okay. Let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james i bet you always wanted to know how to make a few billion well i wanted to know too so i read the book how to make a few billion dollars by brad jacobs And I had questions. So he came on the podcast. I asked my questions and I had stuff related to making billions of dollars, but also completely nothing to do with making billions of dollars. Although maybe it does have something to do with making billions of dollars. You'll be able to tell. Here's Brad Jacobs to talk about how to make a few billion dollars. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show.
I'm not a big Fed macro expert at all. I'm a business expert. I'm a micro expert. I'm, I'm an expert on building businesses and making money doing that. Do you think though, your experience in business and your history in business, I mean, you've been building these billion dollar businesses since the late seventies, your perspective is valuable, maybe even more valuable than let's say an economist who considers themselves an expert. I don't know if it's more valuable, but it's a different perspective because you're in the real world and you're dealing with customers all day long and you deal with employees all day long. So you're, you're seeing inflation and you're seeing unemployment and you're seeing what the job market is. You do have your finger right on the pulse. And also, I think you're more aware that things can go wrong. Yeah, because if you're doing your job right as a CEO, you're always thinking about what could go wrong. I mean, I'm I'm skipping ahead a few companies, but in the in the 90s, you had um, an equipment rental company, United Rentals, and there was all this infrastructure funding set by Congress. So you started buying construction equipment companies. Yeah, that didn't work out so well. Right, it didn't work out. You sold them for a half a billion dollar loss. I did, yeah. So you've been wrong. <laughs> I think a lot of people don't admit to all that stuff. Oh, I've been wrong a lot of times, but I've made thousands and thousands of decisions. So over the decades, so if I'm wrong, you know, on a few dozen things, that's 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 a good thing. That's fine. You can't aim for perfection on decision making. It's not feasible. But given that, you have to kind of diversify your decision making so much that when you do make wrong decisions, you know it's not going to bring you under. Okay, two things on that. You need to be honest with yourself when you've made a wrong decision and have good feedback loops with lots of smart folks and and the numbers and the data. Admit that you've made a mistake and then cut your loss and take action to to bail yourself out from that. Yeah, so like what's a time when not only you made a mistake, but you made a second level mistake, which is that you didn't realize you made a mistake? The biggest mistakes I've made are with people because that's the most important decision you're going to make in business is who do you surround yourself with? Who do you place in positions of authority? Who do you give power to? Who do you give responsibility to? Who are you going to make your leaders? Because your leaders then hire other people and they usually hire people in their image and they create the culture. And so that I, I, that's where I've made my greatest decisions, where I've succeeded the most in hiring fantastic people the vast majority of the time. But the few times I made mistakes, they were whoppers. You know, they were big mistakes. Like what's an example? Can you give a specific? Yeah, I've hired people sometimes who I thought they were real good managers and they were just half good managers. By that, I mean a good manager, a good executive knows how to grow the top line, grow market share, get good volume, please the customers, keep the customers happy and coming back for more. And at the same time, is very thoughtfully frugal, meaning they're very cost conscious and don't waste money. And sometimes I've hired executives more than once who are good at just one or the other and not both. And that doesn't work out. That doesn't cut the mustard. You absolutely need executives who can both grow, grow, grow the business, but do it in a way that is cost conscious. And and I've made some mistakes on that. What about um, hiring someone you didn't realize was dishonest in some way? I've had that. I've had that. And I deeply regret. I I beat myself up about that because at the end of the day, the CEO, the buck stops with me. So even if you have people lower in the organization do something unethical, it really, the buck stops with the CEO. I've had really good luck with people I've hired in terms of honesty. Maybe 99% of the people I've hired have been completely honest and 1% have not been so honest. But when you're hiring as many people as I've hired over the years and look at the three companies that I chair right now, I have about a hundred and roughly about 150,000, 175,000 people between the three of them. 
So, you know, even if 1% are dishonest, that's 1,700 people. That's way too many people. You know, you use the word luck. Like you said, you've been really lucky in hiring people. Do you like to use the word luck? Do you really think that that plays a role or are you just using it to be nice? I'm glad you pointed that out because a lot of things that people call luck aren't luck. It's a byproduct of process of decisions that you made. And then you say, oh yeah, I've been lucky. It's kind of like a false modesty. So I'm, that's a fair point out that you made. Yeah, I, I, I get called out a lot when I use the word luck because there's actually very, very rare when, you know, I mean, luck plays a role in, sometimes in, ma in major things in your life. Like if there's an earthquake and then you have to move and blah, blah, blah. But even that might not be lucky if you move into an earthquake zone. Well, you know, I was lucky that I was born in 1956. So that when I was in my business years, for instance, I was, you know, doing lots of business in the last decade when interest rates were nothing and when there was global synchronized growth everywhere. So, I mean, I was lucky. I didn't do anything to, I didn't contribute to low interest rates or to global synchronized growth. I just lucked out. What I did want to do is I wanted to get into some of the weeds of businesses a little bit. And this, you know, hopefully the listeners will, will go along with me, but you discussed the low interest rate environment that a lot of your career was in. Several of your businesses, at least two of your businesses, were are called roll-ups. And a roll-up is where you, you're able to buy many companies in the same industry. And by doing that, you're able to cut costs through, you know, you know back-end costs you could kind of... Um, combined so you don't have to have as uh, you could it's an easy way to reduce costs and also the the larger a company is often the higher the multiple is when it's valued by the public so you you did this with your your waste company and your rental companies and transportation too we only did 18 acquisitions at xpo and we did more than a couple hundred at the other two you mentioned but definitely we built the company by acquisition and in organic growth you can't just buy companies you got to build them and grow them after you buy them well, part of organic growth is, again, the synergy. So when you buy a company in California and a company in New York, you could often have organic growth because they could trade customers as, you know, if some customers are opening up offices from New York into California, then the fact that you have offices or companies on, on both sides of the country gives you sort of organic growth, but you really are benefiting from the synergies between the companies you bought. I think you summed it up well. You can cross-fertilize best practices as you buy more companies too. That's a big, big part of the playbook. I feel like this is one of the best business models you could possibly do. I completely agree, which is why I've done it three times and I'm about to do it again. So I, if you want an argument, you got to talk to somebody else. I I'm in complete 100% agreement with that statement. Like people say nine out of 10 startups fail, but I think if you're in the business of buying successful companies and combining them, it's a little harder for you to fail. I could still fail my next one. And I don't take it for granted that I'm going to succeed fabulously. And that keeps me on my toes. But the chances are high that I'm going to succeed because I'm, I got a playbook and I keep applying the same playbook over and over again. Uh, what's the next one you're going to do? I haven't announced the industry yet. I haven't irreversibly decided what it's going to be, but I'm zeroing in on one. And it's a large industry that says a lot of opportunity for M&A. And then I can bring a tech angle to it. All my companies I've deployed tech in a big way early on in the company. It's benefited us quite a bit. And that's, that's going to be the case here too. It's interesting. You say it's a large industry. You would think, you know, many of these companies are in industries where there's a solid business model. These are already successful companies. You would think that every industry like that, given the high percentage success of doing these roll-ups, you would think that every industry would already have roll-ups all over the place. Well, most roll-ups have not been fabulously successful. In fact, most of them have not even been successful. They haven't created alpha. They haven't 
created more value than just beta of the market just going up during the period of time when they were doing it. But that's because a lot of people have done roll-ups or M&A strategies. They really had no business doing it. They weren't professional operators. They were money guys. They were promotion guys. They could do M&A. That, doing M&A is the easiest part of the whole thing. M&A, all you have to do is write a check. You wire money and you know, there's a 30, 40-page document that the lawyers write. You sign it and boom, you own the company. So the real challenge starts after you bought the companies and now you have to integrate them. You've got to get all the IT systems the same. You've got to get all the HR systems the same. You have to get the financial accounting systems the same. You have to come up with standardized key performance indicators and metrics. So you have to really, really take a paintbrush and repaint the whole organization. And you have to continually be doing that because you're doing an acquisition, integrating. Doing another acquisition and integrating again. Doing another acquisition, integrating again. And you're always doing these two processes almost simultaneously. And not a lot of people have that expertise. It almost sounds like there's an opportunity to create a company that facilitates roll-ups. Let's say someone has a service company that basically does all the integration of any roll-up. Like, oh, we'll kind of make all the databases integrate, we'll make all the HR integrate, and so on. Well, you know, some of the, you know, you're onto something there. Some of the big private equity funds are starting to do just that. They have started over the last few years. Like Apollo has an operations group. Platinum is famous for that. They call it M&A and O, mergers and acquisitions and operations. And they have a whole operations team that goes in. Blackstone, KKR, all the big guys are doing that now. I want to reel back to uh, your very first business because there was something that was interesting there. So your very first business was like an oil trading arbitrage business. You would arbitrage the difference between oil futures and the oil spot price. So futures is a way to bet on the future price of oil. The spot price is the current price of oil. And what you're saying is basically the futures might have been suggesting oil might be $80 in a month, but right now it's $60. So you could buy the oil and short the futures. No, actually what we did was even crazier than that. It was so ridiculously easy. This was right at the beginning of the futures market starting. So there was no futures market when I first started, like in the late 70s. But then it started coming in. There was in Chicago, the Mercantile Exchange, was New York Mercantile Exchange. And you started having two oil, New York Harbor, two oil traded. Then you had other derivatives traded as well. And it was two completely different groups of people, James. There were oil companies and people who used to work at oil companies trading real physical oil with, with, with wet barrels of oil and a ship and a moving and an FOB and a SCIF. It was you know, real physical business. And, and that was one universe. And then there was another universe of futures traders, futures traders trading on the mercantile exchanges. And they weren't talking to each other. And we, we said, gee, they're trading the same stuff. Why don't we just buy on one and sell on the other? And the spreads were, to answer your question, enormous. Sometimes it was two, three cents a gallon. It was huge, huge amounts. I mean, now you might sometimes get a spread of like a tenth of a penny for like 10 seconds. And then the computers go and try to capture that. So this was, a, this was an era before the internet, before futures, when information was scarce. Information wasn't flowing freely. So companies like ours who were in the game and had a foot in both, we had, we had one, two of the very first seats on the, on the New York Mercantile Exchange. I wish I'd never sold them. I could have retired just holding on to, onto those seats forever. But we saw the, these anomalies between the two markets and we, we jumped in and did that right away. So you were able to buy like on one exchange or one market oil for like $40 and 50 cents. 
and another place right away sell it for forty dollars and fifty five cents. More than that, like maybe maybe fifty cents more, maybe forty one dollars. So it was it was quite a big. They were different worlds. Now you had to be in both of those worlds all day long, continuously, because it wasn't always the same. And sometimes it was for half an hour. There was a window of wow, this has gone up. This one hasn't caught up yet. So you had to really you had to be in it to win it on that one. It's almost like a brain dead way of making money. I'm not suggesting you're brain dead, but like, do you think opportunities like that? you know, still exists or when new technologies or new financial assets are created? Do you think opportunities like that exist again? Absolutely, but not in the same things that it was in the past. Right. Because Adam Smith's hidden hand of capitalism finds these, these inefficiencies and smart capital comes and capitalizes on them. And over time, the margins go down. And then something else comes up. So anytime there's aberrations, there's government intervention. So look, even over the last few years, We've had capitalism turn into a form of socialism in the United States. I say that in the sense that capitalism means companies, profit-making companies are allocating capital, and the free market determines who's doing the best, who's pleasing customers more, who's getting customers to buy their products and services more, and then their shares go up and so forth. And socialism meaning you have government. The government is allocating capital based on what they think is fair and just and right and what their interests are and how they can get reelected if it's an elected government or if they're not an elected government, how they can stay in power. And we've gone now because of COVID to some extent necessarily to more of a socialist model where the government allocated trillions and trillions of dollars, not a small amount, not, not small amounts of money. Now that may have been necessary, maybe not in the same quantities that were stimulated in the economy, but some amount would have been necessary. Otherwise you could have had people suffered in a big way and government had to step up. But what happened as a result of that big intervention of government allocating capital is you had imbalances. You had anomalies created in the market and things got stimulated and got overstimulated. And there you had your inflation and, and we had to then raise rates to lower the inflation. So all these things caused anomalies and people found ways to make money on it. And to answer your question very specifically, I went to an industrials conference about a month ago in the city. I saw about I don't know, maybe 16, 17, 18 presentations over the course of a few days. And I was shocked that about half of them had a slide or two of, you should buy our stock because we're going to get X hundreds of millions of dollars or even more than that in some cases from the CARES Act, from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, from the Inflation Reduction Act. And people had business plans revolving around these government uh, stimulus is government handouts. That's not necessarily a good thing long term for the economy as a whole because you don't have the free market allocating capital. You have people who are getting elected and not necessarily good business minds allocating the capital. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realized, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb 
I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there and it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the, the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So the question is, if it's good for the economy or not, you're saying it's it's being misallocated. Like a dollar that's invested in Federal Express might be a more effective allocation of a dollar than a dollar that's invested in the post office, for instance. Like more letters per dollar invested might happen in private enterprise versus public in that case. So what's the negative ramifications when you see the government allocating so much dollars as opposed to the private sector? Well, the biggest one is inflation. Inflation over the last few years has been horrible. And unfortunately, inflation hurts the middle class and really the working class, the, the people making $15, $20 an hour, they got creamed by inflation. I mean, the main things that they use their paychecks for, like fuel and transportation and housing, these are the three big things that a factory worker or a warehouse worker or a truck driver, that's what they spend their money on from paycheck to paycheck for the most part. These things soared. I mean, these things didn't just go up five, six, seven percent. They went up dozens of percent. It was really terrible, terrible. And people were in more in the hole every two weeks after their paycheck because inflation was, 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 was going up so much. And that was a result of the government overdoing the amount of stimulus, not necessarily bad intentions. And by the way, that's a bipartisan thing. Trump put, I think, $2 trillion into the economy. Of course, the, the Biden administration put many times that into the economy, amped it up even more. 
But the, the amount of trillions and trillions of dollars that went to the economy was just way too much. And that caused inflation. And that inflation is a, is a horrible thing. Now we're working ourselves out of that by raising interest rates and doing quantitative tightening. Yeah. Do you think there'll be a recession? I don't know, James. I, I was at a business conference with a couple hundred Fortune 500 CEOs about two years ago, and we took a poll on a, on a little, little app, and well over 90% thought there'd either be a severe recession or moderate recession in 2022. Obviously, there was no recession in 2022. Technically, there hasn't really been a recession yet since then. So CEOs predicting recessions don't have a real good track record. Neither do economists, by the way. If you, but to answer your question, it's, it's a fair question. I should answer it. I think we'll have a recession next year. I think the amount of quantitative tightening and the amount of interest rates, rising and raising of interest rates by the Fed has a delayed effect of you know, right. six, six quarters or something. I think next year it'll, it'll catch up and there'll be a recession. But I don't have a high level of conviction because a lot of people, including me, have been wrong about predicting the recession that never came the last couple of years. Yeah, and it seems like there's just a lot of enthusiasm right now that you don't usually see before a recession, but there's a lot of enthusiasm for technologies like AI and, and the effect it's going to have on the economy and, and so on. And you, and you also don't usually see unemployment this low during times right before a recession. So it's like an unusual period, but I guess that is true for a lot of things these past few years. Well, that's all, that's all true. So going back to your, your first business, you were 23 years old when you started this first business. When I was 23 years old, I wouldn't have thought to myself, oh my God, I could buy $40 oil on this tanker and sell for $40.50 on this tanker. Like I wouldn't have thought that way. Like what was, what were you doing? What was going on? And you said, oh, I'm going to make a billion dollar oil trading business. So I never set out to make a billion dollar oil trading business. I set out to make $100,000 and interest rates were very high back then. You could get, yes. a, you could get a CD from Bank America. They had a 16% CD certificate of deposit that was based in Bank America, New York. And they had a 17% one that was in the Caribbean somewhere. I forget which country in the Caribbean. And a little more risk, but you get an extra 100 basis points on it. So my goal was to make $100,000. And I figured I could take the $100,000. And with the interest I'd make on that, I'd make over $1,000 a month. And I figured I could live comfortably on that. My two big, you asked <laughs> what I was doing. The two big things I was doing were, were music and meditation. And I didn't feel either of those required a lot of money. I was not into money. My goal was never to make money. It turned out that I was, good at making money. <laughs> and I, instead of making $100,000 over some period of time, I happened to be in the right place at the right time. And I had some great people around me and with me. And, and we were making $100,000 a month and more than that, actually. <laughs> so I, I just, it, I didn't plan it. It just kind of started happening and it's happening. And then I got more and more and more. And one thing led to another. Did you talk to your music friends about this? Like, how did you even get <laughs> into like oil trading? How, I didn't even know oil trading existed until, you know, I was much older. So what did you even know that got you started? I will tell you the moment that I decided to get into the oil business, because I remember very vividly. I was watching the evening news. I think it was CBS with Dan Rather, but I could be wrong. I think it was CBS, Dan Rather. And Exxon, before they bought mobile, they were just called Exxon back then, was the first company to ever make a billion dollars profit in a quarter. And on the television, it said, obscene profits. I said, huh, I'd like to make $100,000. That's obscene profits. I think I'll get in the oil business. So I went to the library, no internet back then. So I went to the library and I just read every book I could get. 
on, on, on the oil business. I read a book called The Seven Sisters. And I read just every, the history of the oil business and everything I could get my hands on that was there. And from that, I started talking to people. I found some other guys who were doing different things in the oil business. And what does that mean you found? Like in, in the bars where your band was playing? Well, I just asked around. Just people I knew, people I ran into, people I knew socially. And some people were doing it already. And I learned from that. And I started making some calls together with some friends. It wasn't just me alone. I don't deserve all the credit. And as a team, we started calling, we started calling major oil companies like Exxon, Shell, BP, Texaco, et cetera. I mean, some of those have been sold, but you know, those were the big ones back then. And we talked to independent refiners like Marathon and Ashland and City Service and so forth. And by dumb luck, the Iran regime changed and the Ayatollah Committee came back from Paris, the Shah left, and they took the 400 American hostages. This is 1979. And oil prices went through the moon. And there was, there was those who were old enough to remember, there was, you had to get your license plate, you either had an odd or even license plate number, and that determined whether you could get gasoline that day. And people were fighting for gasoline. It was a shortage. And the prices were going way up like they had never gone up before. It was a very volatile spot market. So in that atmosphere, guys at Exxon or Mobile or Texaco would take a 20-something-year-old kid's call and say, hey, are you interested in selling any oil or do you need any oil? And they would say, well, you know, we've got some Arab heavy and uh, we'd like to get rid of it. We got too much. If you got someone who's got some Arab heavy, give me a call. And, and I'd say, you got anything you want to buy? So you actually, yeah, yeah. We'd like some Dubai. We'd like some Dubai, some crude oil. I'm just using these examples. Yeah. So now we've got two orders. We got a buy order. We got a sell order. We'd call the next guy. <laughs> we'd call Gulf oil and say, we we repeat what we have the buy and sell order for. And maybe Gulf would want to do one of those. And so then we'd call back Exxon and we'd say, okay, we got a, we have a, a counterparty for you. Let's put them together. They say, is it reputable or is it someone we can't trust? We say, well, it's another one of, it was the seven sisters back then. It's another one of your six sisters. And it's okay, that's fine. Put the deal together and we charge them a nickel or dime a barrel. That was our commission. And we were so all over the marketplace. We were talking to everybody at once that we had market knowledge. We had price discovery. We knew who was selling and who was buying. And therefore, we could match them together and earn an honest brokerage commission. I mean, that's great. But there's a, there's a few things there that are really incredible. And again, I'm trying to like make the, the bridge between my own mindset at, at the age of 23 and yours. First off, when I think of the oil business, even right now, and I think of going into the oil business, as you put it, I think, how am I... Like Exxon is already in the oil business. What am I going to do? Drill for oil? That's the first thing I would think. And the answer is, of course, no, because that requires billions of dollars. And then the idea of calling Exxon up and saying, hey, do you want to buy this kind of oil? Like, why wouldn't Exxon just call their six other sisters and do it themselves? I would think to myself, I don't really add any value here. I would, I would give up before I discovered the ways to add value. Okay. So back then, the seven sisters didn't talk to each other. There were antitrust reasons. There were ego reasons. There were all kinds of reasons. They didn't need to, really. Everyone had integrated oil companies where they were drilling for oil in the Middle East and Africa and Asia. They had their own ships. They, were, they had their own refineries that they were shipping it to in Rotterdam or Amsterdam or in Houston. And they had their own gasoline stations that they would then go and distribute it to. So they were really integrated and everything was going hunky-dory and everyone had their own little world and they didn't really need to talk to anybody else. 
when this Iranian situation broke out in 1979, that all changed because people's systems got all messed up. And going back to what we were saying before, when there's anomalies, when there's disruptions, when there's volatility, you can make money on that if you're nimble, if you're agile, if you're flexible, if you're willing to take a little risk. Yeah. So you just felt confident you would call them up. And then were you ever worried, like, let's say, okay, I got Exxon to buy this from mobile and, and I took my piece in the middle. Were you ever worried that now, instead of being in the middle, Exxon could just call mobile every time they needed the same thing you sold Exxon? Well, that happened. Yeah, that happens mm -hmm. sometimes. And we got cut out of it. And that's a, that happens. But more often than not, these guys didn't like talking to each other. They were very competitive and they had a lot of legal reasons why they weren't supposed to talk to each other for antitrust reasons. You know, the Justice mm -hmm. Department was all over the oil companies back then. Mm -hmm. So it's, they, they really, and, and they weren't our only customers. We had the independent refiners. And then we had the traders. We had a, a big trading community, the Phillip Brothers and Tampa Maxes and many, and they had the Japanese Sogo Shoshis, the big Japanese trading houses. So we had a lot of people to talk to. And we had, and it was, a, we had maybe like a couple hundred customers. And we were talking to all of them. And none of them were talking, none of those companies were talking to the other 199 of them. Everyone had a few they were talking to, but not all of them. So the fact that we were all over the market was our secret. Now, where did I get that idea? Uh, I remember exactly where I got that idea. I got that idea from reading a Businessweek article about a man who ended up doing business with his company, meeting him, and he became my business mentor called Ludwig Jesselson. And the name of his company was Phillip Brothers. And I read an article in Businessweek about him and it had a photograph of, then they were traders. I was a broker. So a trader takes title, buys and sells. A broker matches together a buyer and a seller and takes commission. Now the trader has risk. Sometimes they lose money. A broker, the most they can lose is they don't get paid their commission, but they don't, they don't have a lose, lose principle. And I, there was a photograph in that Business Week article of the trading floor, and it had clocks with the times of different cities around the world. And the article explained that the way Philip Brothers made money was to have a worldwide global organization that was plugged in to all the people who needed commodities and all the people who wanted to sell commodities. And therefore, they had an edge and they had an, a legitimate value they could add in the oil business. And I said, I totally get that business. The problem is I had $5,000 left over from my bar mitzvah money and that was it. So I could not you know, spend billions of dollars buying and selling crude oil or refined products because I didn't, I didn't have billions of dollars and no bank was going to lend me that. But brokerage doesn't require any money. Brokerage just required a phone, just get a phone, and that was pretty much it. And, and the phone, you didn't have to pay for two, three months after you got the phone bill. So helpful working capital. So it was an easy business. It was a business we could afford. And it was a business that was very relatively low risk, almost no risk. And I guess in order for a, a business like this to work, you have to be able to talk to actual decision makers on both sides. Like you can't talk to the people four levels underneath. So if the decision maker was the CEO, you're probably in trouble. But the decision maker probably for an oil company on whether to buy a particular type of oil probably was more middle management is my guess. I don't know. I, no, you're completely right. It was not the CEO. It was, I mean, we would see the CEOs at, you know, the annual events in, in London or in Houston or New York. There were parties, there were trade shows, but they, they really weren't in the trading game. They were running the whole business. There was usually a head of trading at each one of the oil companies. And there was managers of, of crude oil, managers of two oil, managers of fuel oil, of residual oil, different types of oil. And there were managers of shipping, of the you know, chartering ships and moving it around. And that's who we spoke with. 
my guess is through your reading and your conversations, you realize probably, A, you realize that there's going to be this these anomalies and this volatility in the oil business, but you also probably got a sense that the decision makers weren't impossible for you to reach. And, uh, and I think yeah. that's what would have stopped me is that I probably wouldn't have understood that I could have reached the decision makers. I've never been shy about calling anybody. And I find that 90% of people I call will take my call, even if I've never talked to them before. And I, I think people like to talk to other people. People like to connect. People like to help other people. I think most people are generous by nature. And by the way, I don't think, I think you're right. I think opportunities like this, they probably don't exist in the same industries, but they probably always exist. Like it reminds me of reading Bernard Baruch's uh, autobiography called My Story, where he basically gets telegraphed the gold price in London, finds out what the gold price is in New York, and he has the simple arbitrage. You know, it's so funny you mentioned that book. My father had that book. He kept it in his bedroom. He used to see it all the time. He used to always tell me to read it. I never read it. Oh, now it's really good. I, I should read it. Now you, now you mention it again. I, I'm going to read it. It's a different era of investing where, you know, insider trading was, had, there was a different viewpoint on it legally. And it's not, I'm not saying he was an insider trader, but some of his stuff seemed to border on that. But he also used very simple arbitrage principles and found where those very simple arbitrages were. Like in that time, it was gold internationally. Uh, like I imagine now, like let's say someone creates Hypothetically, the SEC approves the BlackRock Bitcoin ETF. I imagine it's possible to call a sovereign wealth fund in the Middle East and say, listen, you need to leg in. You know, a lot of people are putting money into Bitcoin ETFs. You're going to need to leg into it slowly, but faster than your competitors. And I can help you do that by dealing with directly with BlackRock. I'm just making this up right now based on what you just said. So I imagine there's some opportunities like that that could exist in the future. There's always opportunities. The world is so big and commerce is so large and there's so much going on and there's so much flowing goods. There's just so much going on that if you're sharp and if you have an open mind and you have the right attitude and you have great people, there's places you can make money. Always. There's, there's never no places to make money. There's always places to make money. And, and this relates to your, your focus in the book on mindset and how important mindset is. And I, and I, I've been, I've been seeing this constantly lately that uh, how many times mindset is mentioned just in the, in the course of my life. And, you know, you mentioned how it's very easy. It's almost like an evolutionary thing to have negative thoughts because the people who survived were more worried about lions than the people who are optimistic that lions would never show up. And so the question is though, but to succeed in business, you have to have enough optimism or enough positive thinking to know that a 23 year old can call the decision makers and do billion dollar oil deals. So like, how do you, how do you straddle that bridge? You, and you mentioned your earlier interest in meditation. You, were, you said you were interested in music and meditation. Had you traveled to India or like, what was your interest in meditation at that time? Because in the seventies, it was like, everybody went to India to, yeah. to meditate. They, they, they couldn't do it here. And I went to India too. Into the seventies and the eighties and the early nineties. I've been in India a long time. And wow, I have many, many Indian friends. But India has changed a lot. I mean, when I went to India, in De even in Delhi, the phones didn't work. You had to call someone 20 times to get through. When, when I went to India, to get from the airport to the hotel, you were, you were mobbed with people with leprosy and poor people. And, and some of that still exists, but not as much as it did back then. When I was in India, the taxi cabs in the floor had holes and you could see the road underneath you and rocks were coming in. So it's really changed. And there was no 
There was no billionaire class. There was really no big middle class. It was, it was a poor, poor country. Now they've they've changed a lot. They've really matured as a, as a as a country, and the economy's gone a lot. And there's a lot of wealth. There's still great poverty, which is terrible. But wow, it's come a long, long, long way. Now, but you mentioned a minute ago. I want to comment on that. That you have to have a lot of positivity in order to succeed in business. I would say yes, but I would say I agree with you. You absolutely need a positive mindset and a thinking big, and you have to have good upbeat energy and. You want a team of winners and people thinking they're going to conquer the world and all full of piss and vinegar, as they said. Uh, however, I think you can't only be like that because you have to always, you have to, there is a, a value to being also pessimistic, also doubting, also being rational, testing your beliefs, really challenging your hypotheses. Are they right? And in all the businesses I've had, I've created a culture where there's dialectical thinking, meaning Looking at pro, looking at situations from multiple perspectives, not only two perspectives, but multiple perspectives. And I think the reason, one of the main reasons why we've been successful is we, we debate things all day long in a nice way, in a nice way. And, uh, and, you know, I have, I have a, a niece who, when she was young, when she was, when she was in high school, now she's in her thirties, when she was in high school, she, uh, scored very, very high nationally in these, um, debating clubs. I think they called it forensics. And I really respected the way they did it. They would, she, she would have to argue one side of the, of the proposition and then they'd switch and she'd have to argue the against and the person who was arguing against had to argue the for. And she were graded on how well you argued both sides of the, of the argument, not just one side. I, like I think this is, this is really important in business. I think it's important in life. But I think in business, you have to always be thinking big thoughts, dreaming big objectives, but then also challenging those, challenging those assumptions to make sure they're real. And then you have to be modifying the business plan all along based on further evidence that's coming up, more information that's coming, better perceptions and, and analysis of the situation, being opportunistic, pivoting when it's necessary to pivot. So I think you need both. I don't think, I don't think you should just be Everything is roses and ice cream and wonderful. I think that helps. A part of the culture should be like that. But I think it's really healthy and useful and important to have also a doubting part of the culture as well. Yeah. So, but still, I guess there's this optimism that you yourself personally can survive the problems that you encounter in this steel manning of both sides. Like you have confidence that even though uh, okay, you made a $500 billion mistake, you know, depending on the U.S. government. 500 buy. million, not 500 billion, oh, but 500 sorry, million. Five, it's still a lot of, it's still a lot yeah, of money. Sorry. It's still a lot sorry. of money. My I won't mistake. quibble over it. It was a big mistake. <laughs> yeah, you still have confidence in yourself that you wouldn't start spiraling into, oh, I'm a loser. I shouldn't be CEO. Here's my resignation. Like you have confidence that you personally can move forward through these things. Absolutely. I mean, you're going to make mistakes. So in the acknowledgement section of the book, instead of thanking the normal people you thank, I called out who my mentors were. My friends were people I learned from, people I really got something from as a result of interacting with in my life. And one of them was a psychologist called Albert Ellis, who uh, died about 15 years ago. But I had the fortune of seeing him in New York when he was alive in his later years. And I read all his books and I, I just really fascinated with his mind. He was one of the two inventors of cognitive therapy, along with Aaron Beck. He called it rational emotive therapy, but basically it was the same thing as cognitive therapy. 
which is where you're analyzing your thoughts and being aware of your thoughts and then disputing them and reframing them in more constructive ways. And one of the things that he was famous for and what I put in the book that I learned from him is lose perfectionism. Don't, don't try to think that you're perfect because you're not. Don't think other people are going to be perfect because they're not. Don't think that life is going to be perfect. It is not. And if you can really master that non-perfectionism, where you don't expect perfection in yourself, in others, and in life in general, number one, you're a lot happier. You, you get disappoint. You, you don't disappoint yourself. Other people don't disappoint you. The world doesn't disappoint you because you're expecting things to go wrong because that's life. That's the way it works. And secondly, you can be more effective in your thinking because you're not wasting time. You mentioned a, a minute ago in your question about, I didn't think, oh, I'm a loser. Oh, by the way, that's a thought that does come up sometimes. I'm a loser. But then I realized, oh, okay, that's, that's, a, that's a silly thought. That's not a rational thought. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating something. Let's throw that thought away. But that's normal. People, should have, people do have that thoughts, particularly successful people. I'm shocked at when I get, and I know a lot of successful people, when I know them well and we confide in each other, most successful people wear a mask. They wear a mask of confidence, of strength, of I got this whole thing together. And in their private moments, when they're talking to their husband or their wife or to a, another person that they confide, that's a good friend, they say, wow, I don't know if I can do this. Gee, this might be a first year in a long time. I'm going to really mess up. Or wow, look what I did. People have, it's okay. That's normal to have negative thoughts, but you have to reframe those. You can't let them grip you. You can't let them dominate you and just hold you down. But you shouldn't feel bad about feeling bad. You should, and that's something I learned from Albert Ellis. You shouldn't feel you're a loser just because you're thinking in a, in a bad way. You're a human being who's programmed to think not exactly rationally all the time. That's, that's what we are. I won't let my moderate to severe plaque psoriasis symptoms define me. Emerge as you. In two clinical studies, Trimphia guselcumab, taken by injection, provided 90% clearer skin at 16 weeks in 7 out of 10 adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. In a study, nearly 7 out of 10 patients with 90% clearer skin at 16 weeks were still clearer at 5 years. At 1 year and thereafter, patients and healthcare providers knew that Trimphia was being used. This may have increased results. Results may vary. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Trimphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection, including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
you describe a meditation that you do? You mentioned you meditate 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes in the evening usually. And early on, you described two kinds of meditation. I was curious. You don't say you do this, but you said that if you stare at your hands for a few minutes, you'll start to get like into a trance-like feeling. I sure. never heard that before. I've, I've, I know quite a bit about meditation or is enough about it. I never heard this before. So I didn't invent that. Ernie Rossi, he died about two years ago out in Los Osos, California. One of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. And he was a hypnotherapist. And he studied under the best hypnotherapist of all time called Milton H. Erickson, who died in the, in the 80s. And what he came up with, Ernie Rossi, was, you ever, you ever heard of the homunculus man? Homunculus man is, an, is a, um, a visualization of what a person would look like if the size of their organs was proportionate to the amount of communication, electrical and chemical, between the brain and that organ. So they have very big hands. They have very big lips. They have very small other parts of the body. That there's not no reason, like the elbow is very small because the brain doesn't really need to be talking to the elbow much. But due to our ancestral past, the hands are really important because we were pulling onto trees and we had that wrong and we're communicating. One mistake, you're dead. And he came up with this thing of you look at your hands and you stare at your hands as if it's the very first time you've ever seen your hands. And by the way, sometimes. It is the very first time you've really stared at your hands. Some people have never looked at their hands before. And you look at your hands, and it's amazing. You do this, and I've done this with Ernie with 200 people in an audience, and it's very quiet. People do go into a, a trance, to use your word. And you look at your hands, and you start seeing things you never noticed before, and you start getting very, very introspective. And, and he takes that to another level and another level and another level that, we don't, that maybe should be the subject of an entire another podcast, but not, not now. What I did is I took, I'm never ashamed of taking other people's ideas and then improvising on them and making them more relatable to me and stuff sure. I can use. I do it all the time. I'm always looking for, for information that's really cool that I can then maybe apply and adjust a little bit different way and I can use it for my own personal benefit or, or the business benefit. So what I took was, rather than standing there looking at my hands, which after a while, you know, I put my hands down, I said, okay, let me close my eyes because most of my meditation I do with my eyes closed. And I said, why don't I feel the brain? Why don't I just close my eyes and like allow my awareness to just float in the brain? Sometimes on the right hemisphere, some on the left hemisphere, some on the top, some on the bottom, some on the prefrontal cortex in the back, whatever. Just, just be in the brain and see what happens. And I, I, that's been the main meditation. I do lots of different meditation techniques, but that's the main meditation technique that, that I invented, my humble contribution to the field of meditation that I do myself. And I do it several times a day. I don't just do it in the morning and the evening for 15 minutes. But if I'm, if it's two, three o'clock in the afternoon and I'm feeling that afternoon kind of dullness and I got big meetings going on, I need to be sharp. I'll just close my eyes for a few minutes and I'll just feel my brain. I'll just direct my awareness into my brain. And I find it's extremely relaxing and energizing at the same time. I find it unleashes this a huge amount of creativity and it's a sensory activity and just, it's a really cool thing. So that's what I do. That's my main meditation technique is feeling the brain. I do other stuff too. That's the one I really enjoy the most. I think in the appendix, maybe you mentioned some of the other things. Like these thought experiments in the appendix are very interesting. Like the first, I think four or five of them were space related. Like imagine, for instance, you're a, a star 
that's about to explode. Like, what, why did you pick these specific? And maybe you could describe one of them, but why did you pick those specific thought experiments? They, I've never seen thought experiments like those before. You really read the book, Gens. Thank you for doing. Of course, that. No, I, don't really want, did. I, I wouldn't have you on the podcast if I didn't read the book. Oh, good. No, you did your homework. So, thought experiments to me are are an integral part of how my businesses have succeeded so much, because one of my basic beliefs is if you're going to do extraordinary stuff. You need people who are extraordinary and they need to think in different ways. They need to rearrange their brain. Because if we if I hire just ordinary folks and we think in ordinary ways, it's foolish to think we're going to achieve extraordinary profits for shareholders like we have. So that, that's, that's, that's a basic, basic tenet of all my businesses is hire extraordinary people, pay them real well, and let's think in ways that are very different than most management teams think. And I got this idea about thinking differently in part from studying Albert Einstein, where he had these Gedanken experiments. My German is terrible, so I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that word, where, where he imagined different things like riding a beam of light, and he came up with E equals MC squared. And so he literally closed his eyes to picture stuff, and that's how he came up with his theorems. And so I find that if we want to think differently, if we want to rearrange our brain, there's a lot of different ways we could go about doing that. But the examples I gave in the book are ones that are visualizing time, visualizing space in very different ways, either very, very big elements of space, thinking about the whole cosmos or thinking about an infinite number of picturing, actually picturing an infinite number of universes all at the same time. That's very, very expanding, expansive way of thinking or shrinking down to tiny, tiny elements of space. Look, thinking of what would it be like to be in the nucleus of an atom or be an elementary particle inside, inside an atom? And then just getting in touch with that. And then maybe alternating between tiny, tiny, tiny and huge, huge, huge. And that's one way to get out of your normal way of thinking, which is the goal, in my opinion, of meditation is to get into a new state of consciousness, not the ordinary way of, of perceiving the world. But then that's only one, as you, as you rightfully pointed out. There's also ways to use meditation to to change the way you have perceptions of use your senses, ways to, to smell differently, to taste differently, to hear different sounds. There's ways to feel, feel friendliness and love and kindness and compassion and kindheartedness and gratitude and all these emotions that if you cultivate them, you actually put attention on deliberately, intentionally getting in touch with these fantastic, uplifting feelings, you feel great. You feel wonderful. And you'll be more effective in business. That's not going to happen by itself. You got to put attention on that. So I, I, I have many, many different little techniques I've, I've fooled around with over the years. And I've, I've mixed and matched from other meditation teachers that I've, that I've respected a lot. And, and I, I've turned it into my own little toolkit of tools of meditation techniques. It's almost like there's like a bunch of different muscles in the brain that you're trying to exercise. So for instance, if you're not used to feeling compassionate towards people. How about let's do 20 minutes a day of exercising that muscle. But another muscle might be that what we talked about earlier, like, oh, I'm always thinking I'm a loser and that spirals out of control. So another muscle might be noticing when you're thinking, going down an ir irrational path of thoughts, noticing it as quickly as possible, practicing that and, and, and being able to pull yourself back before it spirals. 100%. And you're on something big there. There is a there is a an intersection between meditation and cognitive therapy, where you can 
try to take a new perspective on your thoughts and challenge those thoughts and, and reframe those thoughts. And there's a fantastic book that Aaron Beck wrote about 20 years ago called The Prisoners of Hate. And it's about the mind of a terrorist. It's why does a terrorist do all these horrible, horrible things? And, and the thesis is, it's because there's, like all of us, terrorists have core beliefs that are reflections of their schema, of the, the lens, the prism by which they interpret the world. And those core beliefs are as follows. I believe in XYZ religious thought. Two, you and everybody else must also agree that these are true for all time and these are, this is absolutely 100% true and everyone must agree with me on that. And number three, a core belief that says, and if you and other people don't agree with me on these core religious beliefs, that's a horrible, terrible, unacceptable thing that I cannot let stand. And in fact, I have to kill you. I have to eliminate you because that is a unacceptable situation. And then there's a final thought that says, and if I do do kill you for disagreeing with me, I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to have great rewards in the, in the afterlife and so forth. And those core beliefs, when you have them all, end up in terrorism. So in a way, it's, a, it's false logic. Some of those beliefs are, are wrong. But nevertheless, there's a reason why people create, create, have performed terrorist acts. And it's because of their belief structure. And his hypothesis was, in the Prisoners of Hate book, is cognitive therapy could be an antidote for terrorism in the world. Yeah, I wonder how he made the connection. I guess the connection is, is that if you're aware that some of these core concepts are irrational, then you're able to kind of pull yourself out of them whenever you drift into that. And you could do that through cognitive behavioral therapy, then you won't be a terrorist. Yeah, that's the theory. I don't know that how many terrorists have gone to therapy. <laughs> but I think that's the problem is that they, you also have to have this initial belief that I believe all these things, but there might be another way to think. Yeah. And that's a problem. I mean, I mean, think about this, James. Supposing back with Al-Qaeda, instead of when they brought them to, when, when the U.S. government brought them to Guantanamo Bay, instead of quasi-torturing them, or in some cases actually torturing them, what if they had given them cognitive therapy? That would have been a real interesting experiment to have done. Yeah, because then, presumably, if they stopped having the terrorist mindset, they might be more open with, you know, giving answers to questions and so on. Absolutely. And you think about those core beliefs that go, go into a terrorist mind. If you, if you were able to succeed at challenging and disputing and reversing the, any of those, you wouldn't have terrorism. So in other words, if you just got rid of, they, maybe they keep the first one, like, I believe in XYZ and there's nothing to debate about it. You're never going to change my mind. I'm sure that's, it's God telling me that and there's nothing to change about it. Okay. Maybe they keep that one, but maybe that you can get rid of the second one that says, and you and you and you and you must also believe that. Or maybe they keep those two, but you get rid of the one that says, and if they don't agree with me, that's an unacceptable situation. Or you get rid of the one of, I've got to kill you if you disagree with me. So if you get rid of, and or, or the last one is a motivator to do the, the, the killing part, the, I'll end up in heaven with great rewards. If you can get rid of any of those, if you make progress at disputing any of those core beliefs, the person would be not prone to terrorism. So- it's um, it's interesting because you know you've been in the oil business. You presumably know high up people in these. I don't know any terrorists. Countries. Let's get that <laughs> no, out there. <laughs> no, but that's that's the point. Is that even if you talk to like people in the royal families of the of the Middle East, 
they're not, they're on the whole, I would say, or, or maybe none of them are terrorists. Like they are concerned about their country surviving, their family surviving, their family surviving in power. They're concerned a lot about money. Uh, in many cases, I think they don't like the terrorists because the terrorists get in the way of all those stability factors that they need to keep their regimes going. So, and, and at the same time, they're religious people. So you wonder what, what takes someone turns them into a, a terrorist as opposed to just a simply religious, you know, Muslim. Yeah. It's, it's not just Islam, but that extreme religious belief yeah. with the things that were in that book, prisoners of hate, I think that causes terrorism. It makes sense to me. So, you know, along the lines of, of like mindsets that might be incorrect, I was, I was looking at you, you know, you also have a section with interview questions that you would use when you're interviewing somebody. And one of them, you know, an, an example is, you know, Brad, tell me your professional strengths. Why should I believe someone who tells me their professional strengths? Well, even if they're telling you what you don't consider their professional strengths, you think they're, they're fibbing a little bit and interviews, people fib a little bit. That's normal. They, they're, they're selling themselves. Sure. What they pick, what they choose, what they select to say tells you a lot about a person. For instance, one of the questions is name a bunch of adjectives and phrases that sum you up, that get your essence. Is the word honest in there somewhere? <laughs> is integrity in there somewhere? And if they've listed seven or eight different adjectives and they forgot to say anything about honesty or ethics, you, you got to you, know, you need to follow up with questions on that. Like, that's interesting. How come you didn't mention that? So you learn by what they say, answer, how they answer each one of those questions. And you also learn from what they, they don't say in those questions. And those 45 questions, I put them in an in appendix in the book. I, I've now, so I was at a conference with other CEOs uh, three weeks ago. Several different CEOs came up to me because I, I, they endorsed the book and they wanted to read the book first. They read the book and they said, I'm using those 45 questions now. I'm using, I'm using those questionnaires. I got those questions. I developed those questions over decades, mainly from hearing other interviewers ask questions. I said, damn, that's a really good question. I'm gonna, and I wrote that one down. And I, I boiled it. I find that if, if, if I ask those 45 questions to somebody and I hear their answers and I listen really carefully to their answers, I know that person. I know the essence of that person. I know what makes them tick. I know what motivates them. I know their strengths. I know their weaknesses. I know what they say or they think other people think about them. I know a lot about the, those, those, that person who's in, applying for a job. And going That's back to what, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Again, it's like a second level way of thinking. So it's not so much their answers that's important. It's kind of like the everything else are, that's surrounding the answer. Yeah. You also want to hear and see their, how logical they are in thinking and what their thought process is and how, they, how, they frame, how articulate and how eloquent they are answering those questions. It's funny because I remember it, it brought me back to my very first job interview ever. And someone asked me something similar. And I said, well, I suppose the correct answer is, and I listed off some attributes that I assumed he wanted to hear. And he got very offended that there, he said, there's no correct answer. <laughs> and and I, I just didn't want to BS. I felt like he was looking for certain answers. And I felt it was like sort of unnatural almost answering that question. But I didn't get that job. <laughs> but... You know, it seems like another important thing about making a few billion dollars is having a lot of energy. Like, I presume from your chronology, you're about 12 years older than me, so that puts you in your, 
you know, mid to upper 60s. And you have a lot of energy. You're going around at conferences of CEOs, conferences, industry conferences, uh, writing a book, doing podcasts. So what keeps you so energetic? Like you really do seem to have like a lot of energy. Yes, I'm lucky. I am born with a lot of energy. I'm happy I am. So I've got a lot of stuff going on. So I, I need a lot, I need all that energy. And I surround myself with people who have a lot of energy. That's one thing I look for when I hire someone. How hungry are they? How dynamic are they? How much, how much energy they have? Is this someone who's kind of sleepy and like, no, no. I need people who are in it. I need people who are all in. People who really want to accomplish big stuff and are hungry. And, you know, when you give those psychological tests and they, I want people to score high on need to win. I want people who really need to win. I want people who are competitive by nature, who really want to come in first, who want to be best in, in, in class, but also want to do that fairly, want to do that honestly, don't want to cheat, don't want to cut corners, want to do that ethically, want to obey all the rules, but win within the four corners of the rules, win, 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 win. And for that, you need energy. You need very dynamic people. And I give examples of people in the book who I've been for, fortunate enough to work with who have even more energy than I do. And I have a lot of energy. I mean, like you're even planning your next business or your next industry that you're going to roll up. What do you think you would morph to in the next phase of your life? Well, the next phase of my life, the next decade or so, I'm going to start another company. and I'm going to build it up to something tens of billions of dollars in size. And I'm going to do everything I possibly can to make huge amounts of money for my shareholders. That's my goal. That's my vision. That's my motivation. That's my inspiration. And that's what I've done. And I'm lucky I do that well. And I'm going to try to do it even better this time. So that's definitely what I'm doing in the next phase of my life. What I do after that, I'm not sure. I mean, that's, I'm so consumed with what I'm doing now. I don't plan 10 years from now what I'm going to do starting 11 years from now. But I'm sure I'll do something fun. I'll do something exciting like I always have. Everything I've done in business has been fun. It's been a long, long time since... I needed the money I'm making from business. It's for the fun. It's for the joy of, of creating stuff. It's a creative process. It's like, you know, if my roots are in music where you're just dreaming and getting in the flow and then suddenly you got music and you got people around you getting harmony with and wow, suddenly you got like this cool thing you've invented, this music, this collaborative effort. It's the same thing. I like doing that. I like being with people that I'm harmonious with, people I'm, we're beating to the same drummer to use cliche. Do you still do music? Do you, do you play any instruments? You know, yes and no, I do. But I don't consider myself a practicing musician because I don't practice every day. So to be, call yourself a musician, you really should practice eight hours a day, at least five or six days a week. And then you can, you can jam and you can play in a band and do whatever you want around that. But you need to be practicing. You need to be practice, practicing, practicing your chops. And I don't do anything remotely close to that. But if I get around a piano or electronic keyboard or get in a room with one of my daughters is a musician and, you know, if I see her in an electronic studio, yeah, I'll, I'll get down and geek out on it. But you don't, you don't feel that urge like, okay, now I'm, now finally I'm going to get back to like eight hours a day of practicing the piano. And I do actually, but I, I'm, I'm resisting that urge because you can only do so much at a time. And instead, sure. I replace that urge to be physically creating music that you hear to just enjoying life as music and, and listening to sounds and being mindful about my heart beating and my, the sound of my breath and, and just sounds I hear and, and sounds of the day. And, and I, it's a mindfulness technique. You just really tune in to the sounds that I'm hearing. Pay very close attention to that. And for me, that's very enjoyable. So I, I, I walk 
and when I'm walking in nice places, because I'm living here in Connecticut, and I hear so many sounds. And some of them, most people would say are really ordinary. And I'm, I find them awe-inspiring. I'm listening to them. I'm thinking, this is music. This is symphony. It's great stuff. But I, I do look at life as music. I look at life very intentionally on the hearing of, of my senses. My hearing is probably my most dominant sense. Well, Brad Jacobs, author of How to Make a Few Billion Dollars, great book. It definitely went in directions I did not expect, uh, but it was a great book. It was so many different, like, interesting directions and perspectives. And I really admire the way you've built your career and all the things that surround it. Such a fun conversation. I hope you come back on the podcast at some point. And clearly you felt the need to do something other than business because you did leave, you know, you you did create a, a good part of your knowledge that you're leaving for next generations. And when you wrote this book and uh, I appreciate it. And, and thank you so much again for coming on the podcast. Thank you, James. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate it. Me too. Thanks. I won't let my moderate to severe plaque psoriasis symptoms define me. Emerge as you. In two clinical studies, Trimphia guselkumab, taken by injection, provided 90% clearer skin at 16 weeks in 7 out of 10 adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. In a study, nearly 7 out of 10 patients with 90% clearer skin at 16 weeks were still clearer at 5 years. At 1 year and thereafter, patients and healthcare providers knew that Trimphia was being used. This may have increased results. Results may vary. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Trimphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection, including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at Tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.